0: Just staying at arm's length away from the world. The nation of Israel thought that they were doing that. They thought that they were effectively staying at arm's length away. They, they were certain that that they were not being consumed, well, or at least that they were still following God as in some ways. And the longer their history went on, the further and further they also... Walked away from God, because they were staying at arm's length away from most things, but they were embracing many of them. The prophet Hosea was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel with a strong message, a heartbreaking message. When you read the the book of Hosea, the first three chapters should break your heart. You read the story of a man of God told by God to go and marry a woman who was known to be unfaithful that it was known that she would be unfaithful that her heart would always be drawn away towards other things and other men and he endured that in their marriage and you know as we read those first three chapters we saw that their first child was their first child but then two other children are born that are not his And you know that she eventually left to chase after these lovers. And that in chapter 3, Hosea was commanded by God go and get her, bring her back, and promise to love her. And of course, Hosea's real life experience was always a picture of the nation of Israel and of its unfaithfulness, of its drifting heart. In fact, the strong word is used in Hosea that is just such a a, a word that is heartbreaking in itself that it's used to describe the heart attitude of the people of God. It wasn't just that they were prostitutes in the sense that they went after other lovers, but it was a heart desire. And the word whore is used repeatedly in this strong book, this heartbreaking book, Of the Old Testament, this book of Hosea. Now, we have been reading through this and focusing on several portions of the teaching of Hosea. Last week, we looked at the phrase in chapter 7 where Hosea, God speaking through Hosea, said that Israel is a cake not turned, half baked. They're just believers that aren't all the way done. And we continue to look through this book of Hosea as we move on through chapter 9. Now we want to pick it up there today. And I call this series Prone to Wander. Coming from that old hymn, Come up out of Every Blessing, and the line in there says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one, the God I love. And it is our inclination It is the inclination of the human heart to look for a new, easier way to drift away from the calling and closeness of God. And so we continue now to hear the strong words of God for the people of Israel. And it is as if God is grabbing the people of Israel by the shoulder as a nation and saying, listen to me, I'm saying this in the hardest words I know how to bring. To help you to see what your situation is, how you got there, and what you need to do to return to me. Because I I know God said that you pride yourself on not being in the world, but you don't understand. You are part of this worldly attitude. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you should... um, Find a way to get one for next week, and we can help you with that. And if you don't have one uh, today, so look on with someone next to you. It is God's word. It is to be shared, and so we'll do that. Hosea chapter 9. I want to read just the first few verses here, and then turn to chapter 10. God is speaking. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Let's pray, and then I want to read another portion. Father in heaven, these strong words to your dear people Israel are frightful. It is hard to hear you speak of those that you love so dearly. But Lord, we know that it is precisely your deep love that motivated you to speak such grave words of warning and such strong words to the hearts of your people. Lord, help us to understand our own hearts today. Help us to see where it is that we might be like Israel. Help us to know, Lord, how it is that we are prone to wander. And help us to know how to stay near to you. Teach us, Lord, I pray. Give me words to touch hearts. We pray that you would speak this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are strong words that God has to say to the people of Israel. He calls them Ephraim, which uh, you know is one of the pet names of God for the northern kingdom, Israel. Speaking of one of the tribes, Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Uh, They wanted to stay at home. They wanted to stay where they belonged. They felt they belonged, like you do. Uh, But God was going to remove them from that land of promise. He said in verse 4, They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. Uh, It doesn't matter. He said, you can can have your festivals, but it's not going to do anything for me. I'm not going to respond because your heart is not in the right place. And then he talks about going down to Egypt in verse 6. Egypt shall gather them. Memphis, a city in Egypt, shall bury them. Nettles shall shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Um, And he said, the days have come... punishment have come. What was happening in the real world was there was rebellion in the nation of Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel, against God because they had turned their backs on God. The nation of Assyria was going to be sent to the nation of Israel and take them away. They were about to be captured. God had been warning them for centuries and the day was almost there. Verse 9 Uh, The prophet, oh no, go back to verse 7. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. God is not saying that the prophet is a fool or the man of the spirit is mad. He's saying that's your attitude, Israel. The way you treat men of God is like they're crazy people. Like, why why do they say these terrible things to us? We're nice people. He said, "You, you don't listen. He's saying to the nation, you don't listen. Now go to chapter 10. He continues on uh, in verse 9. In chapter 10 he starts out by saying Israel is a luxuriant wine that yields its fruit. But the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They merely utter words with empty oaths. They make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. This is a dark, dark picture that God is painting for them. So Israel is a luxuriant vine. It's just—it's like a grape plant, a grapevine, and it yields its fruit. But the more prosperous Israel became, the more Israel wandered from God. The more material goods they had the further their hearts went from God. They thought they don't need God anymore. We've got stuff. Now come down to verse 11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. Again, Ephraim is a tender word for Israel. But I will put Ephraim into the to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. He's saying, I took care of you, I treated you special, specially, Israel. I gave you special privileges above other nations, and you abandoned me. I spared you from this labor, but now you're going to know what the work is. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Breaking up your fallow ground. That's what I I want to talk about that portion today in terms of Israel and in terms of our own hearts. Fallow ground is not a term that we understand. In fact, uh, being a city kid, um, I I had to look it up. I didn't know what fallow ground was. I thought I knew what it was, but I was wrong. Fallow ground is an agricultural term. It's not land that had never been plowed. I understand that when the pioneers came to this country and they came across this vast prairie of the Midwest, that the grass there, the wild grass, was some six feet tall. A person walking through it wouldn't even be seen by anyone else because they couldn't see over the grass that was there. The ground had been pounded hard by centuries of animals and freezing and rain and thaw and the sun baking it and the ground broke plows when the pioneers first came. But that ground was not fallow ground. That was virgin ground that had never been plowed. Fallow ground is ground that had been broken up by a plow, that had been prepared, but for whatever reason, the farmer never put seed in it. The ground had been planted at one time but then this season the ground was broken up anew and no seed was put in it, it's fallow. It just lays there. It's not producing anything. That is fallow ground. So I want to describe fallow ground and then I want to talk about how that applies to the human heart and what is needed to make it productive, to make fallow ground productive and how to go about the process. The apostle Paul had an interesting pattern. Um, When he wrote to churches like the Corinthian church, which was the big mess up church of all churches, it seemed that they, you don't. If you're going to pick a name for a church, don't call yourself the First Corinthian Church of Chicago. Don't do it, because that church was not the model church. Call yourself maybe the Thessalonian church. They were good. But the Corinthian church violated everything. They messed up everything. You don't look to the Corinthian letters to find out how to do it, you find out how not to do it. And so uh, the Corinthian church, when Paul wrote to them, he started out in an interesting way, though. He started out commending them, he had a tough letter to write. And he started out by talking about all their giftedness, their spiritual giftedness. Now, later on, he was going to talk about how they abused their spiritual giftedness, but he talked about how he thanked God for them and their spiritual giftedness and and the way that they were richly blessed as a church, as a congregation. And he started out with those words of commendation, and then he said to them the hard words. It's a good pattern. It's a good way to address a difficult topic. Good News Bible Church is almost 30 years old. As churches go, we're getting up there. We're not the young wise guys we once were. We're not the teenagers we once were as a church. We are mature. That's the word, That's the word yeah, unfortunately. Um, and there are some things we need to recognize. There are some great things about Good News Bible Church. If I were writing a letter to this church, I would say uh, this is a warm church in terms of spirit, in terms of lovingness. It's almost impossible for someone to escape here, to come here and escape being hugged. Good. We must never, ever lose that. We must never, ever not be the church that is known for hugging. We must always be that way. Uh, We are a church that tries and strives to hold on to the truth. And we ought to always be that. We ought to never abandon the word of God. We always must be preaching the word of God clearly and never ever wander away from it. And I commend us for that. I commend you for desiring to hold on to that. And it's a good thing as a church. We are a church that desires to reach other people. The activities that we have shows that show that they, uh, we have Vacation Bible School to reach out to not only our own children but others we have Awana Clubs to reach out to other children we show movies on the lawn so that the community is drawn in and we get to interact with them we have picnics we have uh, cross street festivals we do outreach and those are good, good things but I have to say to you that we are not the church we once were I know because I was there At least as good news as part. I'm not, I wasn't around in 1887 when Salem was formed. Uh, I know some of you think I was, but I wasn't. Um, But we are, as a congregation, older. And we need to be careful. We need to guard our hearts. We need to be very careful because did you ever notice a thing about a new church? They don't have anything. And they're excited about the fact they don't have anything. And so when they don't have anything, what do they do? They pray. And God provides. And so they say, praise God! And they get excited all over again. And and then they find they have another need. And, you, and they say, well, we've got to pray. Let's pray. And so they pray and God provides. We used to have a list in our office uh, of all the things we thought we needed for the office. And we'd keep it on the wall. And we'd pray. And we'd tell people and, and ask them to pray. And God provided everything we ever needed. We were young, poor, inexperienced, stupid. And God blessed us. And we worked hard for the things of God because we were young, stupid, poor, and inexperienced, and we needed to trust God for absolutely everything. And it was wonderful, and it was a thrill. Now, I'm not saying we are far from that, but I'm saying that we are in danger. Because when a church gets to be 30 years old, a congregation gets to be 30 years old, some things start to happen. You get comfortable All those years, 17 years of setting up those blue chairs and putting them all away in the closet. And everybody grumbling, nah, he didn't show up to help set up, nah, he doesn't help anyway, you know. And all of the the junk was a blessing to us. And we did it for 17 years, we were like Israel in the wilderness, carrying a tabernacle on our shoulders. You know, we had to set it up and take it down. Every time that cloud moved, we had to take it down and then we had to set it up again. And we did it week after week after week for 17 years. We got here, and one of the first things that happened is we noticed we didn't need that crew anymore. The setup crew went on permanent vacation. The chairs are screwed down. We don't have to set them up every week. We don't have to haul the sound system out every week. We don't have to hang speakers, and one time we used to hang lights every week. We used to do all of those things. We don't have to do that now. Life has gotten easier for us, and we need to be careful. The more God blessed Israel, the further they drifted from him. We must be very careful as a congregation because the more God has blessed us, the more careful we need to be to trust him for greater and greater things. If we stop trusting God for greater things, we will become like Israel in its old age as a nation. We must always be like those foolish young people who didn't know what we were doing, but God was in it. So fallow ground is ground that once had been plowed. It is, of course, the picture of the human heart. Fallow ground in the human heart is hard ground that once had responded to God's word but was not productive any longer. It became hard over time. Even our little city plot of grass, our little two-by-two plot of grass. I always tell Jan, I want to get a riding mower someday so I can go and put it away. Even that little plot of grass, if you get some weeks in the summer of sun without rain, you start to see cracks starting in the ground. And the ground gets hard. And if I want to put new seed in there, new grass seed in there, I've got to get out that rake, and I've got to rake up that dirt. I've got to get down there and break it up, because in a few weeks' time it turned hard, just from a little bit of rain, a little bit of sun, and it turned hard, and it has to be broken up in order for seed to be planted again. So fallow ground is just like that ground. In chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet refers to Gibeah. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. The prophet Hosea repeatedly refers back to historic events in the history of Israel, and this one of Gibeah is not one of the good ones. It is the story told of the prophet whose wife was raped, and by the people of Israel by men of Israel who had gone down a sexual path that God never intended. And her body was cut up and sent to all the parts of Israel. And there was such an outcry of this horrendous deed that happened that there was moral outrage and they rose up against those who had committed this and against the tribe of Israel that had allowed it to happen. And so Hosea is referring back to that incident. They have corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, just as bad, just as morally bankrupt as they once were. Now you know the human heart is often compared to soil and the word of God is compared to seed in scripture. When a believer neglects his relationship with God, there is a slow hardening of the heart toward God. It's not noticeable. Hardness comes from neglect. The writer to the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, uh, wrote this warning. He said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't become like that fallow ground that was broken up but doesn't have any seed in it. And is not able to produce because of neglect. The writer to the Hebrews also said, therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. I don't believe that hardness of the human heart, in terms of uh, spiritual hardness, happens by choice, usually. Sometimes. But most times, believers drift away. They wander away. Oh, it won't matter much. I just, I just won't, uh, I won't gather for worship with the other believers one week it won't, it won't matter much um, well you know last week I didn't go but then this week we've got this event coming up I've got to get ready for this so it, it won't matter much it, it won't affect us much um, but you know I, I I didn't read my Bible yesterday uh, but but I did last week I, I read it and, and so um, ah, but today I've got so much on my plate I just can't do that and I, I won't um, do it I, and Before you know it, just one step at a time, you discover that you are where you never intended to be. That's what happened to Israel as they pursued comfort and were distracted by any other things. I was interested to discover that at least two well-known preachers of the past have preached on this same passage. Um, One was Charles Finney back in the 1800s, an evangelist, and the other was A.W. Tozer. It's very interesting to read and hear uh, what they had to say about this same passage. There are some symptoms of a heart that has become hardened toward God. A heart that has lost its spiritual vitality. i want to list for you 12 different things. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. And you may find yourself, you may find one or more of these in your own heart. Uh, and, and you may find that you need to respond. Here are some symptoms of a hard heart. Boredom with God. Church and the things of God. Boredom would be the big word here. A second symptom of a heart that has become, you know, boredom with the things of God or with church. "Eh, I don't want to go. It's the same last week. They sing some songs. They read the Bible. Guy talks. Eh, It's okay. Boredom with the things of God. Secondly, a preference of entertainment over worship. And by worship, I mean an active participation in private with God. Rather, sports, entertainment, and pleasure drive your pursuits. The biggest goal in your life is to get the biggest flat screen TV you can ever afford. Until the next technology comes along. But you're in pursuit. Because you've got to see. You've got to be entertained. You have a right to entertainment. Third characteristic is a mechanical spiritual life no passion, no tears. No time for it. You see spirituality as a checklist. Um, Read my Bible today? Check. Say a short prayer before eating? Check. Went to church? Check. Uh, You're far more concerned with how your body looks than the condition of your soul. You have a mechanical approach towards the things of God. Keith Green wrote this song that I remember from 20 or more years ago. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know what I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Fourthly, A hardened heart is in pursuit of money and possession. It it focuses all of your thinking. You're worried more about the recession than you are about time with God. Fifth, the lack of care for the souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And also, I would say, for souls of those who aren't in Christ. Sixth, envy of what others have. When someone tells you of some great blessing, you find right away, you say... To yourself, well, I wish it was me. Why, why didn't I get that? You're envious. Seventh, you rarely feel gratitude for anything that you receive. You are ungrateful. You don't think that God provided for you. You think you provided for you. Eight, self-gratification is the number one concern of your life. Does it make me feel good? There's a refusal to deny yourself anything. When you've done, when have you last done without something so that you could give to someone else? When was the last time you sacrificed, did without something so that some missionary could work overseas? Your resources are for you alone. Nine, avoidance of the gathering of believers. We're warned about that repeatedly in scripture because you don't want to be probed. You don't want to be corrected regarding your present condition. Number ten. You're bad tempered. Everybody walks around on eggshells afraid to set you off. Your wife or your husband, your children, your co-workers. And you like it that way. I have to say to you, friend, that mean-spiritedness is not a fruit of the spirit. It's the evidence of deep pride and hardness towards God. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not mean-spirited. Number 11, a little concern for the needs of others and especially the unconcerted. Not unconverted. Do you pray for unsaved friends or do you let others do it for you by passing on requests that they pray for but you don't have to pray for? Do the antics of the unsaved make you angry and not produce pity? They do what they do because they are blind and lost. One man who had been attacked by an unbeliever in a rather brutal way uh, said that I, I don't get angry at him because I, any more than I would get angry if a blind man stepped on my foot because he's blind. Why then should I get angry when an unsaved man shouts curses at me? The godly have always considered that carrying the gospel to produce will produce reproach, but that is a badge of honor for Christ. And lastly, holiness in your life is a little concern for you. It's probably the last thing you think of. Mm, holiness, that's well, kind of a, it's hard. It's discipline, it's difficult. I don't like difficult things. Now, when a heart becomes fallow ground, ground that is hardened and unproductive, has no seed of God in it, it's because it needs the work of God. A broken heart is the work of God. A broken heart comes from a repentant heart, a heart that looks to God and hears the word of God and says, It's me! It's me! I'm the one! And it turns to God. Now, a broken heart can produce tears, but we need to be careful not to be confused. Tears of regret are not the same as tears of repentance. Tears of regret are, Oh, Mom caught me. Rats. I won't get that cookie now. Tears of repentance are what have I done? How how could I have been so arrogant, so hard hearted, so cold to rebel? There's a difference. And a broken heart is something that God produces. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church, he had hard things to say to them. There was a man there living in immorality. that was gross and known and he professed to be a believer when he wrote his second letter the church had confronted this man and the man's heart broke and he was able to say something to this church Paul wrote to the Corinthian church the second letter for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death Godly sorrow is a result of repentance and that's the working of God and there's hope in that. There are whole churches and even denominations that have become hardened to God when they rejected the word of God and the cure for hard-heartedness, for seedless Spirituality is to turn back to the Word of God. Not to get pumped up by some emotional service where everybody, you know, it's great to be excited. It's great to sing loud and swing and sway your hands. Those are nice things. It's not terrible, but it's not the work of God necessarily. Because when the emotion is over, you still have to deal with God in your heart. And so this is what what Hosea is looking for. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Well, that's what a fallow heart is. I've got 30 seconds to wrap this up. Oh, I long for the old days when I could go on and on and nobody cared. But that's one of the things we lost. Um, You are not able to produce change in yourself. You need to know that. You might have looked at that list and you found too many things on there that describe you and you say, Whoa. I need to get to work. And you need to know you can't change yourself. You can't fix it. You don't have the means to do it. You have to look at your heart. You have to examine your heart. And then you have to take ownership first of your sin. Is it pride that's taken root in your soul? Is it bitterness? Are you always finding yourself angry over something? That is self. And you need to identify it. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Just say, okay, I give it up. I give up my, what I want. And you cannot produce the change that you want. I'm not talking about an emotional effort. I'm not talking about crying tears necessarily, although they may come. I've watched over the years, and I've watched some people say, well, I know that I've been unfaithful to God. And I'm determined, I'm going to go to church every week from now on. And I watch, and they come every week for some weeks. And then the car breaks down, a child gets sick, a friend drops in, and they start to disappear. And the determination goes away and washes away amidst a sea of of, uh, trouble in life. Now, these things can be used to set a direction in your life, but it is the Word of God that will change your heart you need to start with the word of God he has promised this he has said that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, from, return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing that I sent it to do that's what God's word does Where do you turn when you discover that your heart has been unproductive, become unproductive? You turn to the Word of God. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It must begin with God's Word. That's why Hosea says, plant righteousness. Plant righteousness. Righteousness is first adopting God's perspective before it becomes action that you do. You see, we're told over and over about the Word of God. For instance, in Hebrews uh, chapter Chapter um, 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the word of God that reveals where you are and begins to open you up to the change that God wants to do. You will see evidence when your heart is changed. Look at verse 12. So for your righteousness, yourself righteousness Reap steadfast love. You please God. You seek to honor God. And you will find that something happens. Reaping steadfast love. Um, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. It's a blessing. It's God wants to bless you. But it has to start with a heart that is determined to seek the Lord go to work today now is the time he says now is the time for your heart to be broken up to break up the fallow ground not some other time not in the future when you get around to it but do it now turn to God today and God promised a result in Israel if they would do it if they would do it he promised that there would be something that came of it God wants to do something He wants to work in you, that he may come, is the last part, that he may come and reign righteousness upon you. I don't think coming and reigning righteousness are the same thing. I think it's two different things. That he may come and be near you and reign righteousness on you. The blessing is knowing the presence of God, having him near to you. And that's the thing that God has promised from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they lost the nearness of the presence of God and it grieved them. In Revelation... God, in chapter 21, winds it all up saying, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall no, be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will come when you seek him, when you desire to know him. So the question is, what is the condition of your heart today? I'm not talking about the person next to you, or the one in front of you, or the person behind you. I know you you know exactly what they need, but what about your heart? That's the question each of us has to ask. Is my heart described by fallow ground? What do I need to do next to break it up? We're going to close with a song, and as we close this song uh, with this song, it's called Inside Out. It's talking about the change that God wants to do from the inside to the outside. You don't start on the outside, you start on the inside. And we're going to do something a little differently here, and that is if you want to be prayed for during this song, come up now, I'm not going to come back up again, come up during this song. and let